Greetings, seekers of marketing wisdom. Step closer, for I hold the keys to the future of your marketing journey. Take a glimpse into my crystal ball as I reach out to the spirits known as CMO Conro. Third-party cookies will soon be dead as the dodo, which means that first-party data will soon be perhaps the most important tool in your arsenal. But since many of us will still be relying on third-party ad platforms and analytics for the foreseeable future, could the first-party data economy be rigged against us before we even start? Could big tech firms be playing 4D chess while we're still on shoots and ladders? Nick Venezia, founder of Centillion Group and chief data officer at Deeppop, has seen the writing on the wall and he's tearing back the curtain and spilling all the tea on how we can navigate the first-party data-dominated landscape of the future. Hi, Nick. Welcome to CMO Convo. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here, Nick, because we're going to be talking about a very big issue, I think, a big issue that a lot of people aren't necessarily aware of. It's certainly something that I wasn't, it wasn't really on my radar until we started discussing this in um, sort of like the intro call for this. And that's basically who has access and who can use your first party data, who, who owns the first party data economy in, re in real terms. And that's going to be a big issue moving forwards with the cookie-less world that we're moving into. So before we do get into that, Nick, maybe you could introduce yourself to the audience, tell us a bit about yourself and why you want to talk about this topic uh, today. Um, yeah, so my name is Nicholas Venezia, um, agency background, worked with a lot of cool, great brands and innovation. And, you know, as kind of everything evolved or whatnot in the space, saw the importance of identity. And with the brands of being able to identify and connect to who that potential customer is. Um, worked with brands, both big and small, you know, brands like that little small startup, all the way up to, you know, iconic brands like the Los Angeles Times, Golden State Warriors, um, with direct response marketing, ones for D2C companies, ones companies like Therabody, Theragun over the last four years, um, and other companies that have been very transformative in the spaces. Fantastic. So these types of companies who I imagine have to put a lot of trust in their first party data, they have to do a lot with their first party data and they're probably quite protective of it and they probably can control it. But I imagine when it comes to smaller companies that are reliant on third party dashboards, that kind of thing, it becomes a little tricky to keep track of where your first party data is and who has access to it. So let's start by defining what we mean by a first-party data economy. What does that really mean? Because I'm sure most of the audience is aware of what first-party data means, but what would you mean by the economy of first-party data? So the, the economy, you can think of it as the ads ecosystem, where it's the economy because it actually has commerce taking place. You use the data to facilitate commerce. That's partly why I feel it should be categorized as an economy. Um, the same way how you can look at, say, like a... a you know, like a, a Roblox or whatnot, the amount of transactions that take place in within it, it's it's literally, it's an economy, the same size, if not bigger than some of the other actual countries' economies, if you looked at their GDP. The same thing goes with first-party data being used on different ad exchanges, not third-party, but brands actually spending against their own first-party. What, what, what do we mean by spending against your own first-party? So things like buying your own branded keywords back on Google search, for example, that would be an example of someone who's in market looking for, for example, your brand. That 
should be technically not something you should have to be bidding against. However, spending against your own first party data would do also include things like email retargeting via meta, where you would have uploaded, say, your email list of existing customers and you'd be re-engaging them for loyalty campaigns. So if I if if I if I've got this right, you're uploading your first party data to one of these systems and then they are they actively using this data to position um ad buying or is it just something that happens because of the system so they actually actively are using it so you look at a platform like meta they're using it to create lookalike audiences so you're able to when you go to upload say that email list into the ads part of meta you can assign what the lifetime value is of that customer this allows for meta's ai to then determine these highest value customers and find commonalities behind them. By meta finding those commonalities, it's able to help extend that brand's reach. And so would those commonalities just be kept to your account or is that something that's accessible for other um, like potential rivals in the space? So that's an interesting thing. So I think a lot of it, when you look at it on pixels, and that what's placed on pixels. You look at a platform like an ad roll or a different platform, even like a Google, you have to ask yourself is how is it that immediately after I say visit Ford's website, why is it that I see a retargeting ad, not for Ford, but for General Motors? Mm, that's a very good point. The question is, is you ask that question, I don't fully know the right answer because that's technically not in the terms of service and privacy policies. However, we all know that that definitely is the case. You visit a website, you might not see that brand's website you just revisited. You'll see the competitor. The way in the terms of service people get around it is by literally taking that website visit because that pixel data that they've collected and they've categorized your customer who they're learning from or potential customer that interest and i suppose it, it gets really complex when it comes to sort of like serp advertising pay-per-click as well i think one of the most famous examples of something like this is um monday.com's ad placements on google um i'm sure lots of people in the audience have seen this where they've they basically bought up the ad space for anything about what's a better alternative to any of their rivals which is hilarious and fun and great, but also very dishonorable, I suppose, is a way of th thinking about it. Like you're basically stealing the organic traffic to position your brand in a way that's, yeah, you're basically capturing adword, like keywords and adwords for someone else's brand to be able to advertise there, which sounds like. Yeah, a bit of a racket, really. A bit of a, a yeah, go on. It's, it's an ethics question. It's data ethics. It's literally data ethics of do we feel that we should have, or, you know, a company should have that right to say those first top three slots of their own brand, a keyword, knowing that that's the search intent of that user, or should that actually be allowed to be an ad slot? Because a lot of people at first didn't know that was an ad, especially on mobile. Definitely, definitely. Um, And there's been a lot of cases recently about, misuse of those ad slots as well um particularly in certain like political avenues and um hot button social issues as well particularly in the us so i could see this becoming a very very toxic space and a very very toxic thing quick well i suppose it already is a toxic space it is toxic already 
you have to look at how people, how easy it is to manipulate an algorithm to drive a certain outcome. And that, that can have some devastating effects as well. Right? You, if you, look you some... literally look at some of the biggest things that have happened in the last five years, and it has literally been through messaging and product placements, literally designed through ad tech itself. And that messaging is literally done leveraging all of those algorithms, those AI, that product, that ad slot. So in real terms for, let's say, smaller companies who aren't necessarily talking about big political issues and stuff like that, mm-hmm. what it, what is that impact going to have on how they buy ad space, how they, how they deal with uh, first-party data? Is it just driving up the prices or is there other things going on that could be an impact that they need to be aware of? Well, I think actually, like, let's look at this also, and let's throw in the you know Silicon Valley Bank because that's a topic right now that's relevant as well. Yeah. It's where you have the VC cash that's going in for these startups. It goes in to Silicon Valley Bank. It then flows through Silicon Valley Bank through the startup into Meta and into Google because those startups have to do the user acquisition. Mm-hmm. They have to get the checkouts. How do they do that? That money is literally getting funneled from VC to Meta, to Google, to TikTok because of the user acquisition. So when you propose that question, you know, a way of thinking of it is like a lot of times it's still at the end of the day, it's the VCs with the money and they're literally that company having to hit that user acquisition number and they'll do whatever it takes. You know, and they'll leverage their data the best way. They'll bring in the best media teams and they'll innovate. But there's only so much tinkering you can do when you have to be reliant on these networks actually having your best interest at heart. So I'm going to assume that these networks don't necessarily have about companies' best interests at heart or, or even consumers' best interests at heart. What's the solution then? Do we just stop using these these networks? They, they, we're kind kind of beholden to Google and Meta and TikTok and Twitter as digital advertisers, digital marketers. One hundred percent, though, because that's where the attention of the people, the consumer, is. And if you're a brand trying to drive sales or you know trying to get people to visit a website, you've got to go where the the eyes are. Now, what I think is important, though, is that brands start to go and evaluate of okay, how can we start to remove all these pixels that are on our website? And not actually be dependent on a cookie, a first-party cookie. How can we actually start to remove these different third-party analytics off of our website and actually start looking at things like log files? And then building and taking that in-house. So you actually own your own tech stack. So it's a it's a development task then? Like, uh, Does every single company need a first-party dashboard or are there... Certain maybe like open source dashboards that could work it, in this kind. It of... wouldn't be think of it as an open source as a first party dashboard. It's a literally a matter of a brand or you you just creating your own database. It's a database first. It's where okay, I'm going to have a centralized one tr- set one truth, one source of truth across our company, and that has your inbound website traffic. That has all the emails. And then once you have all those different things is you start to do the enrichment to identify who's that IP address connected to that email, connected to that checkout. When the brand starts to unify it within their own ecosystem, their own tech stack, it allows for them to not be reliant on a third party's algorithm to inform or guide them. 
that algorithm should be custom to them. Right now, I personally feel we're in essentially in the fourth industrial revolution, which is this AI, this literally this shift in the economy to an AI based economy. What's so go on there, go on. Sorry, what's that mean? Oh, no, no. So an AI based economy, when you think about it, is when COVID, for example, happened and the shutdown and lockdown, a lot of companies still had to operate. They went to automation. That automation and digital transformation that so many companies went through, at the end of the day, what fuels it is data. Meaning that for that company who went through digital transformation, that company who went through optimizations of the website, for those crazy cool AI algos you now see coming out with ChatGB4, it's now a matter of can you get the cleanest, best, most structured data to feed as the fuel to the AI's fire to perform best? And what would be the benefit of doing it that way, of providing it with the first party data rather than engaging with like a third party system to do that? Like what are the pros and cons of that? All you can't trust third party. Can't trust third party. Just throw it all out the window. What you should do, though, is you can take your first party data that you know is real. What you know is the truth. You know this is a person who's interested. You know this is a person who's expressed intent. And you can begin to enrich it with third party data that's actually deterministic. Where we know, for example, this is where this person went, shopped, purchased. Here's the loyalty card. Here's that match to the mobile phone numbers. Here's that purchase event. Or they attend these type of concerts regularly or these type of co trade conferences. You look at actual real world action taken and you start to identify your consumer, your customer, your trade partners in, in those ways of knowing what's real. So you can then identify the most relevant people. I suppose as I well. Know, go, go on. Oh, sorry. Go on. One of the things too I saw with your in your podcast recently was you had one uh, an episode that talked about the business persona. Mm -hmm. A business persona is is spot on because you look at say a LinkedIn profile that's stated business data. People keep that up to date, and by leveraging say that first party data that you have, but all you're doing essentially is CRM enrichment by appending to that say record of that customer where they work, what the job title is. You've now made it where you can start to make new clusters or groupings from your first party data by things like job titles. That's the fuel for the AI, is those new groupings from your first party. But third party, you don't want to trust it. I suppose third party, they have a, they have a vested interest in making their platforms and channels look more effective. I mean, if, you, if you're just getting your data straight, from, your, your analytics, your data straight from Google or straight from LinkedIn or straight from Meta, can you actually trust that that data is real? Like, have you actually seen the processes behind it? Can you actually so, trust that the weight that they're adding to certain metrics is actually having an impact? And I think that could be a big advantage to focusing purely on first party data is that you strip away all of that vested interest. 100%. And you also have to realize is that when you look at the court documents that came out in the US is that Google actually had an entire department that was designed to write algorithms to provide the lowest amount of value, highest profit for Google, lowest value for customer, but keep them spending on the platform. Wow. And that's literally an entire department that was based out of Austin.
in their building. It's like half a floor and it's literally in the court paperwork. And when you look at that, that that's coming out, it's like, okay, well, we always thought that, you know, they, they, there's fake traffic, there's bots, there's ad fraud. These places can clean that up so fast. It's not even funny. They don't because they need to meet that actual what the dividend has to be for the shareholder or what does the earnings for that quarter have to be so in an ideal world i imagine maybe union isn't a great word to be talking about on a a, a marketing podcast but i imagine this union of marketers all getting together and saying okay we're just not going to not use google anymore and that's going to be great. And we're going to divorce ourselves from these vested interests, these algorithms that we don't necessarily have understand or access. That sounds like a pipe dream to me. Like Google's here to stay. So oh, what, is the, what is the solution here, Nick? How do take, we work around it? Take ownership of your own cus- cus- of your own customer data, as well as your own ecosystem in, in-house. Bring in data scientists, bring in database architects, bring in those data engineers, and look to see what your company needs to have the optic so it can actually drive the outcome necessary. Because those data scientists, those people will help the media team, the media buyers, they'll empower the creators to identify the optimal placements, the optimal creative to display, the optimal messaging. And by working with people that are vested in your company, not in corporate profits, it starts to make it where you start to slowly remove some of the power from these networks. Because the question you have to ask yourself is, when was the last time any of these platforms removed or updated that audience interest? So when it comes to actually running this process initially, let's say you're focusing wholly on first party data, is it worthwhile still running tests on, say, Google ad placements, just so you can see the discrepancy between what's going on? So you've always got to buy your branded keywords too. Yeah. That's what's crazy too, is you got to make sure you buy your branded back. Um, but yeah, no, what you're saying is entirely relevant. It's like you take the interest of say open targeting and you gauge where, okay, what's the click-through rates? You set the same exact bid, or sorry, budget caps. So when you're trying to do those type of testings, you have the same budget cap. So you might have your first party data that you enriched and are trying to have Google say make a, a lookalike of or, you know, a meta make a lookalike of. However, what you've done is capped both the interest of, say, what the third party would have been and that lookalike at the same amount. So say it's 500 a day for each or 500 a week. After that week's test is run, you then look to see, OK, what had the highest click through rate? And you're running this at the same time with the same creative, same messaging, same end URL. What you're actually testing is the data set by keeping both the creative, the URL, and the headline copy the same. So it's almost like switching A-B testing on its head kind of thing. Rather than using A-B testing to test copy, to test images, to, to test video, to test messaging, you're testing the data, which I think is a very interesting perspective. I haven't heard that much about people doing these kinds of processes. Is it something that's being commonly done now that you're aware of, or is it something that people need to start doing? It's something we've done for a few big brands, um, like a Therabody 
Um, and ther- so Therabody Theragun, we're working right now also doing this type of work with True Classics. And, you know, those are those companies in the direct, res- you know, direct to consumer that are, have much higher ad spends. But this is the type of philosophy and belief that we need to empower media buyers with. You know, it's about a matter of a few of us going into different groups and becoming advocates in those, say, two or three small groups that we as marketers penetrate into. And being advocates for helping the customer at the same time own their own first party identity graph. Knowing who they are, knowing so this way they can opt in for what's relevant to them. And that kind of opting in is going to be very important with new data protection laws coming in, with new uh, rollouts of the GDPR standard uh, data protection and compliance all across the US. So, yeah, opting in, those kinds of options. And transparency as well, letting them know exactly who has ownership of the data is going to be incredibly important moving forward. The next decade is going to be it's a whole new game in that area, because realistically, how can you as a human opt out of a data set? Do you really want to be literally scraped right now by ChatGPT and all these other AI platforms to literally identify every single commonality about you, every single thing? It's scary. It's very scary. Yeah. I mean... I like to think of it also in one sense, it's like if you really wanted to, you know, give the AI like right now with 23andMe, you look at the scale. This is, this is just a fun, you know, hypothesis on a tangent here. Look at the sheer scale of how many humans have submitted to those the swaps for DNA. They could literally clone and recreate the, that human race. It's pretty creepy. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, I, I saw Tim Genin had an article in Attitude about a digital twin. It's like, well, here's your digital clone coming up too. You know, this is going on. The, it's going on Mars with Musk. Yeah, probably. And yeah, and and it, it's something that maybe consumers aren't aware of the issues of this. Um, it's something that you see in like the T's and C's, the terms and conditions, and you just scroll past about who has access to your data, who can use it. That kind of transparency of consumers has got to be important moving forwards as well. Uh, There isn't any place for that yet. Mm. That's what's so sad. But you look at it and that's something where maybe, you know, a whole decentralized DID could come in and and start to help. This whole decentralized identity idea or philosophy Mm -hmm. is, you know, you know, where's the bill of rights for the essentially for the customer, the consumer, the human. And I'm human. I don't want to be a number. I don't think other people do. No, definitely not. Um, no, I'm not aware of how things are in the states entirely at the moment. Is is there a right to be forgotten at the moment in the, at all when it comes to your digital footprint? I think a lot of places in the, in Europe have introduced this now, so that you have a right to basically have your data completely removed from a company's um, databases. Is that something that's currently done in in the US? You can request it, but good luck. Okay. You know, they will say back that they did or they'll pass you back the data file. It's fascinating when you start to actually request your file from a company like, say, like a Mint that's integrated into, say, your checking account. You'll get a 100 page file back. It'll have everything. Yeah. And you have to understand is that Mint and these different platforms that are free, they have to make profit. The way they make profit is from the consumer data. We only are able to have these trillion dollar companies because of the consumer data. That first party data economy is human data. So if we want to have a reset, that shift happen right now of, you know, I am human in essence, 
right now is the time where we as marketers have to help empower our customers for this change to happen. And for us as marketers, media buyers, data and scientists to go in and try to help actual humans stay human. Definitely. I agree, Nick. And it can have, I mean, you only have to look at some of the, the scandals around data leaks and um, breaking data protection laws in re in recent years and see what devastating effects that can have on communities, on people, uh, on brands as well. Like it, it can be an absolutely catastrophic thing to happen. And that was then, if we provide even more data to people now, even with GDPR, having rolled out and stuff across large parts of the world, like there's still, we're still very willing to provide our data to companies without even thinking about it. And is it up to us as Marxists to educate people about the dangers of this? Like people have 100. Yeah. hundred percent. Like what you're, what you're doing right now, having this conversation with, with me is, is an example of marketers and us as people trying to take back and be the people who could try to help lead this charge. Because the only way to make a change happen is when a group of us truly come together and we say, we believe this is true. And this is a belief system that we as marketers want to globally adhere to, is to help the human, our customer, take back control and help us as marketers, as CMOs and whatnot, are the companies we work with take back control of their first party data from companies like Google being able to literally sell the website traffic the second it learns about your customer to your competitor. And that's a really good way of framing it there, Nick, as well. Like it's not just about, I mean, of course, the ethical side of thing is very powerful. I'm sure there are a lot of people listening who would agree with those kinds of ethical considerations. But when you have to go to your CEO and they have to go to their board and you have to share, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna stop exploiting people's data in the way we have previously in the way that we've made millions or billions of dollars that's gonna be a hard ass to say but if you can frame it in a way that shows that it could be impacting your profits this kind of first data first party data economy then that's when you start to move the needle as well like speak to people's wallets that's where speak that's to where, the cfo yeah speak to the CFO. explain to the cfo how much money is right now going out monthly on branded right now they're looking at cutting cost places mm -hmm. You want to cut cost places? Okay, guys, let's come up with a better way. First off, let's stop enriching Google's graph or Meta's graph. Let's start pulling off the different third-party pixels that are reselling the data. And oh, wow, wait, what will happen is you'll start to notice your ad costs are going to start to decrease. Because you can still target those areas. You're just not giving, you're literally doing offline conversions. So you're uploading in, say, purchase events okay. into Google Analytics so you can still pull attribution. That's just that way they're not having a full optic of every page of customers visiting. They're not in, you're not enriching your competitors opportunities because they might still be spending and you're not. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like a moving your, yeah, moving your data into a black box kind of thing, like into, into a, it, a citadel to use sort of data protection terms, that kind of thing. That it's companies, the black box that owns it this time, yeah. not meta. But it's a company-owned black box, not a meta-owned black box. Mm -hmm. And it's a database. This way you can actually go look and here's Mary, here's Joe, and here's, here's Steve. And here's where they live and here's what they've bought from us.
Meta and these other platforms want that just a number that you think of as a number, not as a human. That's what's important is us as marketers helping the companies we work at and align with to empower the customer, the consumer, the human, and us as companies to lead the charge to take back control of the digital identity and data that we all treasure. So Nick, it sounds like this is going to be a process that can take a while. What are some initial steps that brands can be taking these days, that CMOs can be taking to start shoring up this kind of process? Talking with different, literally looking in AWS and those different areas. And if you're a bigger brand, you're going to want to start to stand up your own servers, literally servers all day. That way you can start to process your own data. And at the same time, you want to bring in database architects and engineers who can help create the framework for then the data scientist. You know, all these companies went through digital transformations. Now it's time for us to actually achieve the outcomes of those by structuring the data properly for that digital transformation to occur. Because until we're able to take control back and put that ball in our own court as marketers to help drive the company's sales, we're always going to be relying on Meta and Google and the other ones for user acquisition or new sales or retargeting or loyalty. So right now, it's going to take a long time, as you're saying. It's true. We have to undo all this brainwashing of the last 20 years of, oh, I, my data isn't worth anything. Or I'm always going to have to put Google's pixels on there or their analytics. I don't have a different choice until we can start to show the the you know the CEO and the owner of the companies and the shareholders also. Hey guys, we're in this new era, and in this new era with AI, we're able to use AI as a guide. And what we do now is help structure the company's data, allowing AI to help guide our marketing outcomes. So Nick, yeah, sounds like there's a lot to think about here, a lot to be going on with moving forwards as well. I'm certainly feeling the need to storm the barricades, take back control of the data and stuff like that. And I'm sure a lot of our audience are as well. Do you have any final, some final like golden rules about how people should be thinking about the first party data economy right now? Like what should they be considering in terms of yeah, the immediate data is human. Yeah, at the end of every single IP address is a human. It's a person. It's not a number. It's not a numerical hash. It's a person. And treat data human. Treat it with respect. And when we start to think of it this way, and all this inclusion, what what about the digital inclusion factor? What about taking care of people's information and their identity and who they are? We wouldn't want anyone stepping on our identity or our names, would we? No. So we as marketers should help our customers do this too. That's great, Nick. That's a great note to end on, a great call to action to use the uh, the marketing terminology. Uh, thank you very much, Nick. This has been really fascinating. As I said, there's probably loads more to explore on this topic, but I'd be happy to explore that with you at a later date as well. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more developments on this topic as more and more AI use cases come out, as more and more more day-to-day -day data protection laws get rolled out as well across the US. So I'm sure there's going to be lots more to explore on this in the future. 
Yeah. And we can totally tell you about how we're doing this for podcast hosts and podcasters and helping the publishers and the actual creators take control of knowing who the listeners are so they can best tailor their content. Well, as a podcast host, I'll be very interested to have that discussion at some point soon. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Thank you very much, Nick. Um, As I said, at the top of the show, this is a topic with a lot of big things, a lot of big things that are impacting marketing. So thank you very much for sharing your insights on it today. I've really appreciated it. And I'm sure our audience has too. Great. And thank you so much. Appreciate everyone's help and listening as well. Thanks, Nick. And thank you very much to our audience as well. Uh, we'll be back soon with some more CMO combos. Like what you heard from this CMO combo? Make sure you hit that subscribe button and leave a rating so the whole world knows how great it was.